Hey, thank you for tuning into the rundown here on WNYU 89.1 FM New York and online everywhere at WNYU.org. I'm your host, Grace Wanabo. Tonight, we will be covering NYU's ban of in-person club gatherings, the situation at Rikers, creative live performances in Harlem, the ongoing taxi strike, and CUNY protests. But first, here is your daily rundown. I'm Grace Wanabo, and this is your Daily Rundown. New York City healthcare workers can now file for religious exemptions to avoid getting vaccinated, a move that can prove especially dangerous when ICUs are already crowded with unvaccinated patients. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, already under plenty of fire recently, has officially banned the enforcement of any statewide vaccine mandates, a move that has drawn protests from many activists and parent groups. Indigenous activists celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day by rallying in front of the White House as part of a five-day protest. The activists are specifically urging President Biden to take immediate action to stop the use of fossil fuels, a practice that has historically decimated and threatened Indigenous communities across the country. We have had enough of your empty words, said the organizers, who called out Biden for not doing nearly enough to fight climate change before they were attacked by the police. The officers used long-range acoustic devices using high-pitched noise to attempt to disperse the rally. The Project Nimbus plan, through which Google and Amazon have been contracted to produce $1.2 billion worth of technology for the Israeli government, has led about 400 employees of the companies to anonymously sign a letter protesting that contract, which they say directly leads to violent actions against Palestinians. This is WNYU. Earlier this month, NYU banned sports and performing arts clubs for holding practices in person, leaving club leaders scrambling for solutions. Grace Symes has the story. On September 22nd, NYU sent an announcement to leaders of performance and fitness-based clubs letting them know that they were no longer allowed to practice or perform in person due to concerns over COVID-19 transmission. Now, club leaders worry that their clubs might not have a future beyond this year. It's very possible that we won't have a team next year. It was kind of questionable this year. We really had to push to get a full e-board. That's Sydney Akinayaka Lynn, the president of NYU's ballroom and Latin dance team. She worries that there's almost no one left in the club who has experienced in-person events or competitions, and that by next year, there won't be anyone qualified to manage the logistics. Clara Plutzer, the president of NYU's Quidditch Club, has similar concerns. Hopefully it doesn't fizzle out, but I think that's a potential risk given that all the members now, like after this year, all the members, none of them will have gone to nationals. None of them will, only a few of them will have gone to a regional competition. So I think it'll be a very interesting, very interesting to see if they're able to continue as a club. Because like if you don't know the logistics of how to schedule tournaments and how to do rosters and how to you know, work with the university and no one's told you how to do those things because there's been no one doing it for the past two years. I think it's really hard to start a club or to bring a club back from that. Less than a month since NYU's announcement, both clubs are already feeling the effects. Quidditch practices used to draw around 30 people, but online events average closer to six. And before COVID, the ballroom and Latin dance team had more than 50 people on their competition team. Now, they have just 40 members total, and sometimes less than five people show up to online lessons. 
And then this year, of course, there's there was a huge interest. Um, and then we've seen those numbers dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. At least last year, members could participate in online competitions. But this year, all the other universities are competing in person. Other universities don't have this. They're talking about how their teams have grown more this year than they have pre-COVID years. And I'm jealous of that. I am. Like, that, that hurts, especially as, like, the president of the team that really cares about it and has known how this team can be and how it functions normally. It's just really sad. For club leaders, the decision doesn't make sense. Akanayaka Lin is in a dance class at Tish, where she dances inside and in person, the same thing her club usually does. And for Plutzer, it seems unfair that varsity sports and intramurals are still permitted to practice and play in person, but sports clubs can't. It doesn't seem fair because we do the same things that varsity sports do. So from that logic, I'm like, why why can't we do the same things that other NYU students are doing? The only difference in COVID policy between clubs and varsity or intramurals is that varsity and intramurals require proof of vaccination. But NYU claims that 99% of the student body is vaccinated, leaving both leaders confused as to why club sports pose more of a risk. But if you're going to let these other organizations do their thing um, and not clubs. If you're claiming that to be in the interest of students, it's not. NYU's initial announcement said the university plans to revisit the decision in a month or so and mentioned a plan to host an open forum for club leaders in the near future. While leaders hope NYU reverses the decision, they're not optimistic. For WNYU, I'm Grace Symes. The Rikers Island jail complex is in the midst of a worsening humanitarian crisis. Sachin Sundar spoke to Zachary Gillespie, an alumnus of NYU's prison education program, for his insights at the situation inside Rikers. From WNYU 89.1 FM, this is Sachin Sundar. And the crisis at Rikers has been building for some time this week. Some state lawmakers questioned de Blasio administration officials today about the crisis on Rikers Island. Rikers Island is making news for all the wrong reasons. The officers' lives in jeopardy is true, and the inmates' lives are in jeopardy too. I'm ashamed of what those legislators got to see. This hurts so bad to know that young people are dying in our system when they should be getting help. The Rikers Island jail complex in New York State has been under growing scrutiny for increasingly inhumane conditions, which federal monitors have described as nothing short of an emergency. Recent reports reveal that at least 12 people incarcerated at Rikers have died this year, which is the largest death toll in years. The vast majority of those at Rikers have not been tried yet. I spoke to Zachary Gillespie, who's an alumnus of NYU's prison education program and a current student at the College of Arts and Sciences. He got involved with the prison education program when he was incarcerated at Wallkill Correctional Facility, and he is now a peer researcher with the program. I asked him about the prison education program and the situation at Rikers. I began by asking Zach for his take on events at Rikers Island. This is what he said. It doesn't really surprise me because I've been to Rikers Island before. I, 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 I guess I could say it was only a matter of time for the, um, I guess, the flaws in the city uh, prison system. Rikers Island is a jail. Jail is a place where people go who are um, awaiting trial 
or I guess in violation of like uh, post-release supervision or probation. So it's jail is sort of a, a place that's like, I guess they, you could say it's in very, it's uncertain place because people don't know like their future prison. is more like you're here, you know how long you're going to be here. So the social components, everything is like more structured and, I guess a little bit more organized. Jail is sort of like chaos. It's very a chaotic place. And Rikers Island is like a large, just broken piece of city infrastructure. That was just, it was only a matter of time for what's going on now to um, be exposed, like the corruption, the, the, the violence, I guess. I asked Zach about the impact of NYU's prison education program. It's like a tremendous impact um, on our lives, on my life at least, just the places that education takes you. In prison, there's sort of a lack of opportunity. I guess there's more of a focus on uh, vocational trades, and there's sort of like been a disinvestment in education within the prison system. And I think that NYU came at the right time. Zach describes himself as a prison abolitionist. I asked him what that means. The way that I define prison abolition is sort of uh, like a, a, new, a new way of like community in the world in which sort of there's like not a need for people to uh, quote unquote commit crimes or the response to these actions could sort of be uh, done in a less carceral way and uh sort of like a more investment in social programs rather than carceral. So um, I just believe that if we had more investment in our communities and sort of more of a, like, if we invest more in kinship, there's sort of less uh, less room for uh, for the growth of the carceral state. Really, really, I mean, prison abolition is sort of like a world in which we police ourselves, basically. And, and I mean, like we create communities that are safe spaces for all. Zach also talked about the need to close Rikers without building new jails. So there's like a push to close Rikers Island, which is totally fine. But the city would like to build four new jails so it's like we're gonna we're gonna close this one big broken jail. We're gonna open four new ones that we know we can't um, sort of maintain, and we really don't need it anyway. But let's just do that. I don't know. I understand that the disinvestment to reinvest. The controversy around Rikers Island has raised important questions about the future of prisons in the United States. I'll give Zach the final word. I just want to say that um, New York City is a wonderful place and um, we don't need more jails right now in the city. We need more investment in our communities, sort of in in education. Like we don't need more police officers on the street. We need more after school programs and we need more investment in technology. So everyone can have sort of like the same opportunity provided to them in in an educational space. Students who are interested in getting involved with NYU's prison education program 
can reach out to Caitlin Noss, the executive director of the program. From WNYU 89.1 FM, this has been Sachin Sundar. Musicians are getting creative with their performing venues in Harlem. Arya Young has the story. Where the wonderful performance you just heard took place? Not in a bar or in a park. It was on someone's balcony. During the pandemic, many musicians found it upsetting not being able to perform live. Some started thinking outside the box. Saxophone player Connell Thompson is one of them. From what started as a duet with his neighbor and award-winning trumpet player Ella Brick, Thompson now holds full band performances across three sets of fire escapes of his apartment building in Harlem. They have held four Live from the Balcony concerts so far on 110th Street. The performances have included benefits for the family of Elijah McLean, victims of Hurricane Ida, and for the girls, which supports transgender people of color. Historically, Harlem is the birthplace of jazz and a hub for musicians and artistic souls alike. NYU student and singer-songwriter Serena Beard-Galati talks about the Harlem music scene as a Hamilton Heights native. So growing up in Hamilton Heights, I was surrounded by a lot of musicians and up-and-coming artists. These were young professionals who were really serious about, about art and um, being in New York City. I remember opening the door to the street and I would hear people reciting scripts for their auditions. And as I walked down the street, I would hear jazz musicians um, just playing for hours and hours standards. I think what's really special about Harlem is the the culture of it all and, and the past of Harlem, especially the Harlem Renaissance. When I think about the Harlem Renaissance, I think about about jazz and I think about how uh, young musicians have kept it alive in this very historic location. It's really super cool that people my age are using experimentation and live performances and music and cultivating projects like the balcony performances. And I think it's such a fantastic way to connect the people on the streets, the people living in Harlem with music and Harlem's past. For the rundown on WNYU 89.1 FM, I'm Aria Young. Working-class immigrant cab drivers have been financially ruined by unpayable medallion debt as a direct result of city policy. 
For several weeks, activists have been picketing outside City Hall to demand city-backed guarantee on medallion debt for taxi drivers. Here's the story. Right outside City Hall, along Murray Street and Broadway, are parked yellow cabs. In front of them are their drivers. This is my cab. One of the taxis belongs to Richard Chow. He's been a yellow cab driver for over 16 years. On the hood is a small plaque. This is called it's called medallion. I pay medallion four hundred ten thousand dollar. A medallion is a permit that taxi drivers need in order to legally operate their vehicles. They're either sold by the city or traded among taxi drivers, and they take out loans to pay for the medallions. Richard bought his at the New York City auction in 2006. It was a good income. We used to make good money then working for、uh, like you know McDonald. So the taxi had a very good income at the beginning. Yet since the arrival of companies like Uber and Lyft into the city, the value of the medallion has decreased significantly, from 1.2 million at its highest in 2014 to about 100,000 today. And now taxi drivers are facing a massive debt crisis. On average. Drivers owe the city half a million. We lost everything. We lost the retirement. We lost the investment. We lost the, all the the exclusive right. We lost everything. A lot of taxi driver, they lost their houses. They lost their family. And with the 18 months、uh, pandemic,、uh, a lot of they they suffer a lot. This has also taken a toll on drivers' mental health.、Uh, there is a. Uh, panic to the driver. Nine drivers suicide. We don't know how many drivers are lined up with that. With the panic, and this stress is building year after year. On top of the medallion inflation, other factors have made life as a taxi driver more costly. Everything is increased:、uh, the insurance, car maintenance, gas, and、uh, there is a liability. Everything is increased. So. It's not just a medallion. While taxis have heavy regulations, Uber and Lyft have almost none. They aren't even required to pay a medallion. When Uber came, came with no money. They didn't pay anything. We pay up to eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. Some of the driver, eight hundred fifty thousand dollars pay for one medallion. That's an exclusive right to drive in New York City. Uber and Lyft come with zero. They pay nothing. Most taxi drivers are immigrants and elderly. And they see this double standard as intentional. It, it looks like one city to rule, you know, one for the yellow taxi and one for、uh, Uber and Lyft. I call it apartheid, because when you have one city and you have two rule for two kind of people, it's it's deeply, you know, discrimination. Today will be the yellow cab drivers' 25th day of round-the-clock protesting outside City Hall. They are demanding that Mayor De Blasio grant them debt relief. They are also demanding that Uber and taxi cabs be regulated equally, and if their needs aren't met soon, we, we're going to have a hunger strike here.、Uh, there is a community, there is a、uh, religious organization.、Uh, they are all coming for the prayers.、Uh, there will be last meal from the homemade. Our community will be provided for the last meal. Yellow cabs have been deeply rooted in New York City culture since the late 1800s. But you don't see all that many anymore. This is the time that it's the taxi industry is 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 vanishing. It's vanishing from the street, and it's an icon of New York. For the rundown, this has been Grace Wanabo.
Vaishnavi Naidu is a managing editor at NYU's magazine Under the Arch. Today, she shares her poem, Ode to the Little Girl in the Puffer Jacket, and discusses the creative process and themes behind it. This is an ode to the little girl in the puffer jacket. Chip nail polish paints her dainty fingers, laying beside a carelessly discarded black dress. Days later, the scent of him lingers, her runny mascara constantly making a mess. What happened to the little girl in the pink puffer jacket? Curl your hair and give them a little twirl. Don't you dare make a fucking racket. You're young and beautiful, says her mother. Don't give yourself to all the boys who will want you. But everywhere she looks, there's an endless stream of lovers. How they will hurt her, she has no clue. Don't you grow up in a hurry, or you'll cry yourself to sleep at night. All the days fly by in a blurry, and now she can't see no light. But there was once a little girl, swaddled in her pink puffer, who'd give her mother a little twirl and never had to be tougher. So an ode is basically... Um, like a eulogy of some sort, like a, a way of honoring something or like remembering something. And I wanted to dedicate this to um, a past self of me that didn't know all the bad things that could happen to her and all the trauma that she would incur, you know, before like a more innocent version of myself, the little girl in the puffer jacket. I wrote this about a couple months ago over the summer. Now I see another version of this girl almost because I look back at myself every few months or so and I always see a different version of myself who's gone through more shit again. I guess it just shows me that no matter what I go through, I get stronger and stronger and I keep pushing through because what used to be really bad back then is now something that isn't as bad now, you know? I just keep moving forward. I've never been someone who's like understood rhyme schemes or been good at them, but I was in this poetry class that was really challenging me to actually make my poems rhyme and not just, you know, like a, a, a random mess. And I was sitting there and they told me to write an ode and I was like, I don't know what to write. And then I kept thinking and thinking and thinking. And then all of a sudden it came to me that I wanted to write about myself. I wanted to honor a past version of myself who had been through so much and had made it through all that. And once I started writing, I just couldn't stop. Like, I think I wrote the poem in like three minutes, to be honest with you. A lot of it came from the way my mom used to speak to me because me and my mom didn't have the healthiest relationship when I was younger. And there was something that she'd always say to me that I was... Um, a pretty girl and that I was rich and um, that I was smart so boys would want me and I should be very careful and she always um, she just created this narrative that um, the world was always going to be really dangerous for me in a way you know and that really stuck with me and it made me really sheltered and it um, created this bubble where I didn't feel safe ever going out and doing anything so that's not the narrative that we want to be like creating for young women we want young women to feel strong we want them to feel like they're in charge of their own lives that they shouldn't have to hide away because of all 
the bad things that could happen to them. The poem actually was like from an image of me in a pink puffer jacket because I remember looking at that image of myself when I was about three years old and it's just me making like a really silly, goofy face and just like looking off somewhere and not really like just without a care in the world, you know? And I looked really ridiculous because the, the puffer jacket was huge on me. It was so big. But... Yeah, I just kind of missed that innocence in a way, you know, where things didn't matter as much. Just being a child. City University of New York is a public university that has existed since the 1800s. It's historically been a site of student action, which led to an open enrollment and no tuition until that reversed in the 1970s. Today, it is a primarily working-class institution with a majority students of color that often commute to their classes and have jobs outside of their education. PSC Cooney is the Union for Staff and Faculty, which has organized a series of protests across the city to address unsafe learning environments at campuses. I'm here with reporter Winnie Marion to talk about the recent wave of protests. Hunter College, alongside other CUNY campuses, had a chaotic opening that sparked a lot of attention. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, of course. On the first day of this semester, I went out to Hunter College to flyer with the union um, for upcoming protest about COVID safety regulations. I was expecting it to be a pretty difficult time trying to catch people going back and forth on the street like it usually is organizing at CUNY. But um, this time, different from all the other times, there was a crowd of people outside the doors and this entire dysfunctional blob of people. And then walking past that, past the blob, you saw even more dysfunction as the line stretched out. Not just one block, but three blocks through the Upper East Side of students waiting to get in. It seems like they were unequipped to deal with the onslaught of students this year. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, um, over the pandemic, as um, following the history of austerity that CUNY has faced, um, they fired uh, many of the adjunct professors and other staff. Um, and un- there's an unclear estimate about what that number is. But um, it's made for a lot of dysfunction about going back into school. The union is really concerned about the safety conditions, which is why they had volunteers out there talking to students about the classroom safety conditions um, and other things before the first day of school. Um, and the lines were just something that demonstrated this very unsafe environment that students were walking into. Um, this wave of austerity started around the fiscal crisis in New York City when CUNY went from being tuition-free and open enrollment to having tuition and closed enrollment. Um, and then ever since then, New York State, which is where the budget for CUNY comes, has forced um, this continuous budget cuts and um, forcing of less money going to our education citywide. Um And that's just a long history following into this very recent trend of firing professors who are already not paid um, too much of a living wage and um, not enough staff to do things like handle uh, COVID um, coming back to school during a pandemic. You mentioned that health and safety inspectors 
warned that their campuses failed to meet COVID regulations. Can you say more on that? Yeah, the the union PSC CUNY sent in about 200 um, health and safety watchdogs to all of the CUNY campuses across the city and to see if it would be safe to return to school this semester. And they found it was not. They found a lot of ways in which um, students and professors alike would be put at harm, things that uh, worried them. And a lot of professors who asked for exemptions from uh, teaching in person this semester were denied, um, even though they had medical um, conflictions or other things um, that made them feel unsafe. And... um, In general, the classrooms were unventilated, students crammed together, um, you know, almost uh, 50 students in an unventilated classroom right next to each other. Um, And CUNY generally has a long history of not having enough money to fix their schools, has infrastructure that's um, not really well kept. So... um, Part of this was also a result of this ongoing issue that's been systemic throughout um, the history of the school's existence. You're part of the campaign New Deal for CUNY. What are they and other organizations doing in response to these events? Yeah, so there's a piece of legislation, as you said, called New Deal for CUNY, um, which is a statewide piece of legislation we hope to get passed which would make CUNY not only tuition-free, but give more money to um, the infrastructure like I was talking about to make it more sustainable for students, keep our students safe, um, and also hire uh, more counselors, mental health professionals for students, and pay their adjuncts and others um, better wages. So um, part of that campaign will be continuing to pressure state legislators and um, others as we go into the um, 2022 legislative cycle session and um, also PSC CUNY is encouraging people to email their senators to ask for um, CUNY to have better, um, safer conditions for their students. What has been the general mentality in the student body? Generally pretty scared. Um, Standing on that line that day, a lot of people were coming up to me asking me for things, and I was like, I cannot help you. I don't know anything about what's going on. Um, But it was just kind of this, like, utter chaos and confusion. I mean, as you can imagine, being a student on your first day of school ever, going to college, parents in tow, and missing your first class because you've been stuck in a line for hours is disarming, and it makes you angry and pretty ready to act. So we're hoping that a lot of this momentum carries us through because um, students are really ready to see a change at their institution. They're ready um, to not have to drop out of school because they can't pay tuition or not pay or pay tuition just to have the infrastructure be falling apart and them feeling unsafe in their classrooms and their professors feeling unsafe in their classrooms. Um, So... That's the general sentiment of the student body right now. I would say in general, just like scared to be in class and very hesitant about the return to everything. How do you see this unraveling in the next few months? So because the CUNY budget is decided at a state level, um, what my hope is is that CUNY would become the forefront of the conversation in our 2022 state elections for Senate and Assembly members. 
um, if this is an issue that becomes, you know, within the conversation, our education budget and how to get CUNY students better education and for free so that um, the working class students of New York City aren't having to um, put themselves at risk for education. Uh, that would be a great win for um, our campaign and for students alike. Um, so we hope to see that kind of change going forward so that people aren't stuck in these really unsafe conditions and that the um, union isn't forced uh, to continuously compromise their own safety. Thank you so much for coming in and talking about this tonight. No problem. Thank you so much. That's going to be it for us here tonight. If you like what you heard or you want to hear something different, you can email us at news at wnyu.org. I'll be back here next week, same time, same place, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Grace Wanabo, and this has been The Rundown on WNYU 89.1 FM, New York.